again, everybody. Yeah, it's pretty dreary, isn't it? <laughs> Outside, it relaxes you, makes you tired. Well, I'd like to lay all my cards on the table here at the very beginning of this series and tell you that uh, I have an agenda for you in this study on Galatians. My agenda is that each and every single one of you would become so deeply rooted in your confidence and hope in the life and death of Jesus Christ for you that you cannot be shaken. Been here 11 months in about two weeks. Coming up on a year already. You all are not in the way of some vision I have for the church, right? You are my vision for this church. Your life, your hope, your faith, your souls, that's the goal. In Genesis 4, way back in the beginning of all things, Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel, brought offerings to the Lord. Most of you probably remember this. Cain brought an offering of fruit that he had grown while Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. Cain's offering of fruit was rejected by God while Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. So Cain, in his anger, not just at Abel for bringing an acceptable offering, but at God for not accepting his offering, murdered his brother. Those two offerings point for all time to that which God will always and only accept to cover our sins, the blood of a sacrifice, but also to that which God will never accept to cover our sins, the fruit or the labor of our own hands. But also, Abel's murder reveals a conflict that is going to exist throughout history, particularly in the church. And that's that those who are justified by faith in Christ alone will always be in danger, will always be threatened by those who desire to justify themselves by their own works. And that is the reason why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians thousands, at least thousands of years later. And Galatians is what is, is by far the most passionate and yet, one of the most reasoned letters in the New Testament. The lines are very clearly drawn here. The reason that a different gospel gained a foothold in Galatia is the exact same reason the false gospel always gains a foothold in the church. Every gospel but the true gospel scratches the itch we all have to make ourselves acceptable to God by our works. And we may not realize this, and I know it might sound presumptuous to say it, but this is where the truest, deepest, most important battle in the church always is. In answering our answer to the question, what makes us right with God? Christians tend to treat grace 
like the red-headed stepchild in the room. If we don't keep him under control, everything will go off the rails, right? So we come up with unbiblical words like balance to try to suppress grace. you got to have balance. Grace is true, but you need to balance that with obedience. We try to keep ourselves from enjoying grace too much, but grace is not the enemy. It's not to blame for a lack of good works. Grace is not the cause of license in the church or a lack of devotion in the church. Grace is not in the way of what God wants to accomplish. Grace is the means by which God accomplishes everything He wanted to accomplish. God didn't mess up with grace. He he doesn't need to rein grace back in because we take advantage of it. Grace comes from the God who is not divided. Grace comes from the God who has no anxiety. Those who believe are justified by grace through faith alone, completely apart from works. Jesus Christ died on a hill to accomplish that. So if you would, or if you are able, would you stand with me as we read the first ten verses of Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, here in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son. The one whom, after making purification for sins, sat down at your right hand where he will stay until you make all his enemies into a footstool for his feet because what he accomplished was perfect. He is the Lord and the head of Moundsville Baptist Church, or we are false. So, Father, let him speak. Let him reign over us. Father, don't let me use Galatians to preach myself. Overcome me, overshadow me, that I might preach Christ crucified, so that everyone that hears my voice would believe in him and cast every ounce of their faith and hope on him and him alone. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, everyone.
It's important to remember when we read these letters that when they were sent, they were meant to be read in one sitting. So anytime you read a portion of it, you have to read it in light of the whole thing. Galatians was written in those first years of the gospel spreading out beyond Jerusalem, but as the gospel spread, so did the efforts to try and stop it. Paul's early missionary journeys had taken him to Central Asia Minor. We know that as Turkey, where he had planted the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Roman province of Galatia. It extends from the the Black Sea, I believe, in the north, all the way to the Mediterranean in the south, or it did. And almost as soon as Paul got done there and left, sometime around 50 A.D., after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, a group of men, of teachers called Judaizers, men who taught that in order to be God's people, you had to live as the Jews did and do what the Jews did, crept in, as they always do, and begin to pervert that gospel, troubling the believers there, Paul says, agitating them is the word, distorting the message that Paul had sown there. And the Galatian believers were buying it. And in order to understand Paul's arguments throughout this letter, we have to identify and understand the arguments the Judaizers were making. What were they saying? What was their doctrine? Because Paul calls it a different gospel And he calls down the fire of judgment on the false teachers for proclaiming it. So they aren't harmless. It's not a matter of splitting hairs. They aren't just well-informed but or well-meaning but misinformed teachers. They are malicious and deliberate opponents of Paul and of Jesus Christ and of the one true gospel. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And throughout this letter, Paul gives them no quarter. None. He pleads with the Galatian believers not to believe their teaching, not to be bewitched or fooled by it, because it's appealing to the flesh. But to these false teachers are Paul's strongest and harshest words in the New Testament. The first thing they were doing in order to spread their poison was to discredit Paul. See, They said Paul wasn't a student of the original apostles, so he didn't have their blessing. They didn't authorize him. They didn't send him out. He's just a rebel running around independently, spreading his own dangerous and unbiblical message. We see that issue alluded to immediately in verse 1, where he makes it clear that he's not just a true apostle. He's one with very unique and specific origins. We'll talk more about that in one eleven to 2.14. He's dependent on no one for what he teaches. There is no one in Scripture like the Apostle Paul. No one. In a sense, he stands alone. God has Paul deliberately on a different level, separate in a way, even from the original original apostles in Jerusalem. Paul has a very unique role in Scripture. Remember 2 Peter chapter 3. Even Peter said that Paul is hard to understand. See, Paul's on a different level. Level. I don't mean he's morally or, or, or spiritually above them per se. It's that he's on a different level. He has a unique role. And I would go so far as to say that by God's design, if it wasn't for Paul, understanding the whole Bible properly would be impossible. You cannot interpret the Bible properly without the words of the Apostle Paul. It's impossible. The Judaizers had to discredit him. 
which means they also had to discredit his message. And everything wrong about the different gospel these false teachers pushed had to do foundationally with the fact that they did not accept the significance of Jesus Christ. They did not properly comprehend the massive effect that Jesus had on history, particularly by rising from the dead. Paul's immediate mention of the resurrection in verse 1 is not just some throwaway part of the salutation. He brings in the resurrection because it is absolutely crucial and foundational to the arguments he will make against these false teachers. Jewish people like the Judaizers believe that the resurrection was going to come at the very end of time when God would raise up all his people from the dead. Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, Martha in John chapter 11. That's what she's referring to. Yes, I know that he will be risen on on the last day, right? At the resurrection on the last day. What they did not expect, what nobody expected, was God to raise the Messiah from the dead in the middle of history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ meant then that the new creation God had promised in the Old Testament dawned, was inaugurated, not at the very end of time, but right smack dab in the middle of time. The resurrection of Jesus and His ascension to the right hand of the Father from which He reigns meant that the old creation that started with Adam and everything that was a part of it, this present evil age in which we live now, is going to exist for a while at the same time the new creation that was started by Jesus, the second Adam, is taking place. No one really saw that coming, and Paul is the one, mainly, that reveals all this. So he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's why that matters. It's fundamental to Paul's whole argument there in verse 4. What was the will of God? What was His purpose? What was His decree that Jesus Christ would come into human history, give Himself for our sins in order to deliver us from the present evil age in which we live. The false teachers did not believe this. They didn't believe that the death of Jesus Christ saved. Nor did they believe that the present age was evil in the first place. They didn't believe that you needed delivered from it. The false teachers believed that the law was an eternal end in and of itself. The covenant with Moses was everything to them. And it was still in force. And it always would be. And they believed that because God commanded Abram to be circumcised in order to identify him as a child of God back in Genesis 17, then in order to become a part of God's people, these new Gentile Christians would also have to be circumcised. That That's something very natural now in most parts of the world. At the time, it, it wasn't the norm. And in Israel, it was a distinct thing that marked you as the people of God. And these false teachers were telling these Galatian believers, in order to be God's people, you have to have this happen to you. The men in the group, that had to happen to you. 
And then once that happened, once you were marked on your body, then you were required to obey the law of Moses in order to actually become righteous. If they did those two things, then they would be right with God. The problem with that is now that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, the age in which circumcision and the law were central to being marked as the people of God was over. It ended. The resurrection ended. The necessity of circumcision and the law to mark someone off as part of the people of God. Jesus Christ died for our sins to deliver us from such an age. An age that is now referred to as the present evil age. The old creation. In Ephesians 1, 8 and 10, we find that God's plan from before time began was to bring all things together in His Son. Not in the law, but in Jesus Christ. The false teachers were making then the most dangerous mistake anybody trying to interpret the Bible can make. Not taking Ephesians 1, 8 through 10 and what it says about Jesus into account. How can we understand any event properly, any text in the Bible, without taking into account the fact that everything exists to come together eventually in Jesus Christ? The Judaizers did what all false teachers do, though. They cited texts from the Bible to prove their point. You, you can hear... How, I mean, how can we listen to Paul? Paul says... Paul says you don't even need to be circumcised to be a part of the people of God. Has, has Paul never read Genesis 17, 9 through 14? You can hear how pious that would sound, how deceptive that would be. Nobody wants to disagree with the Bible in the church, so you understand what they're doing. They're holding the Bible up. The Old Testament is what they had. They're pointing to texts in it and saying, see, Paul is crazy. Look at what this says. Citing a text is not the same as properly interpreting a text. And that's the issue. The issue is never, I can point to a verse that backs up what I say. So can Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Anybody can do that. Anybody. Are you interpreting the text correctly is always the issue. Were the Judaizers correctly interpreting the Old Testament? The answer in Galatians is a resounding no. The message from God in Jesus Christ is grace and peace, not obey and do your best and good luck. Jesus Christ came to address what Martin Luther called the two great devils that plague us, sin and conscience. We all know we're broken and twisted. We all feel the weight of God's law. We know that we'll give an account, and we know that we can't face His justice. The only true gospel, the one gospel, is that the death of Jesus Christ saves. If that is lost, if anything else is introduced as necessary for me to do in order to gain salvation, if obedience to God's law becomes a matter of whether or not I'm saved, I'm condemned forever. Listen to the passion again with which Paul writes, the shock he feels 
that anyone would trade in what he had taught them for a message of salvation by works. Listen to verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Make no mistake. The Judaizers are proposing an entirely different way of being made right with God. And the problem with that is that there's only one way of being made right with God. And it's as if the Galatian Christians forgot who Paul was and what he had proclaimed as soon as he left. He tells them later they've been bewitched. They're foolish, he calls them. You you learn in Galatians what's appropriate when the gospel is threatened. They're already abandoning the God who had called them in the grace of His Son to embrace an entirely different message about how we can be made right with God. And beloved, the false teachers were using the Bible to do it. They weren't denying that you needed Jesus. They were just saying you needed more than Jesus. So we don't just proclaim a false gospel when we change the terms. We said something like, well, I think, I think a, a person that follows Buddha could also, it's not just that that's proclaiming a false gospel. It's adding to the terms that is the proclamation of a false gospel. To add to the gospel is to deny the gospel, even if what you're adding is God's law. That corrupts the gospel into something that can never save. The Judaizers were following the apostles around and doing this because they hated the idea that the death of Christ alone could save people. Right? They hated that idea. They hated the idea that Gentiles would have the gall to believe that they could just become a part of the kingdom of God by believing in this upstart Jesus Christ and and this Paul who proclaims that he really was the Messiah, that he actually did rise from the dead. They couldn't bear that. Nobody that believes you can be saved by your works can ever bear with the gospel. That's why Paul was being attacked. That's why Cain killed Abel. That's why humans killed Jesus. That's why to this day people still have to qualify grace. Not too much now. Balance. Right? The message of grace goes out and it's like people can't help themselves. Yeah, but I mean, you still have to... Why? Why? What's going on? We're talking about what saves... What's going on? We need balance to do what? To do what exactly? Why do you need to qualify when we're saying that we're saved by grace alone? Why does that need qualified? Is it not true? The question Paul is dealing with in Galatians is this. What saves. That's the question of Galatians. Is it the death of Jesus Christ alone? Is it the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone? Or, if you want to get technical, 
See, this is in the fine print that you tell people after you tell them that if you just believe you'll be saved. Well, more or less, right? Once you get them in, then it's like, by the way, carry this weight for the rest of your life, or you're not saved. Right? No, we're not gonna, we're not gonna admit that, but that's what we do. Good works are still necessary somewhere in order for us to be right with God. Are they necessary for us to be right with God? That's what Paul is addressing. And beloved, when we're talking about what saves, there are no, no qualifications. We're not talking about what our lives look like. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what makes us right with God. We're talking about what it is that guarantees eternal life. Full stop, period. The gospel Paul preaches, the one, as he calls it twice here, the one true gospel, that won't make the thief on the cross an an anomaly, right? He won't be a problem, like he is for every system in evangelicalism. Nobody knows what to do with him, right? Paul's gospel won't make him an anomaly. You won't look at him and say, well, I mean, he's a special case, though. I mean, normally grace isn't that sufficient to rescue. It isn't that powerful to save. Most people don't get the benefit of dying right after they believe. They actually have to prove it. No. The thief on the cross is the proof of what the death of Jesus accomplishes for all who simply believe that Jesus is the truth. That man did nothing. He didn't even pray the sinner's prayer. Right? He, he, he didn't. When you come into your... I deserve this. You don't. When you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's not an anomaly. It's not. It's not to, to say, oh, man, that's, well, that's sweet of Jesus to do, right? No, that's the proof. What is Jesus doing when Jesus tells him that? Dying. Here's what my death can do, right? He's not an anomaly. And that's all Galatians is about. This is not a secondary issue. This isn't something we can agree to disagree on like so many other things. Because according to Paul, if we add one drop of anything to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, including obedience to the law, as that which is required to make us right with God, you teach that, Paul calls down fire from heaven on you right now. Right now. The Holy Spirit didn't stave Paul off when he wanted to write that. No, you write that. Look at 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema in Greek, harem in Hebrew. If anyone, even Paul, he calls the curse down on himself first. If even I, if even an angel from heaven were to preach a message of what saves apart 
from faith in the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient. Let fire fall on them from heaven right now. Let them get judgment now. And he says it twice, just in case. After you read it the first time, you think, man, he really lost his temper there. No, no, no. He says it twice. It's exactly what he meant to say. Who are we to tamper with the sufficiency of Jesus? And why in the world would we ever want to? When allegedly an angel named Moroni gave Joseph Smith the tablets that would form the Book of Mormon and establish the actual way to be made right with God, do you know why Joseph Smith bought it? Do you know why Joseph Smith did not remember or pay heed to what Paul says here as clear as day in Galatians 1? For the same reason the Galatians were so quickly deserting Him who called them in the grace of Christ and were turning to a different gospel. For the same reason, even today, we cannot just believe that faith alone in Jesus Christ, apart from any works, is actually what saves. We do not want grace to be true. We don't. We do not. We are not only deceived in our sin, we are deceived in our ability to be righteous. The false teachers preached a message that resonated with what we all believe naturally coming from Adam. I I just need a little bit of divine assistance and I will be able to earn my salvation. The root of the different gospel is pride all the way down. It's Cain. Over and over and over again. Look what I did. Look what I made. When the one true gospel of grace and peace by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ says, you don't need divine assistance. You need divine rescue. And beloved, the difference between divine assistance and divine rescue is as far apart as heaven is from hell, literally. Grace is not a push in the right direction and then you row the boat. Grace is God taking the oars from you and giving them to Jesus until you get to shore. The life of a Christian is meant to be the result of knowing that Jesus is rowing the boat. The death of Jesus Christ saves. Period. And either we will lay down our rebellion against God and trust in Him to do it all, or we will perish in our delusional pride and wickedness. Now, that message will not ever win you and I any friends. Ever. Again, you don't need to be a self-righteous jerk to become foolishness to the world. You need to be as kind and humble as Jesus and proclaim that there's only one way and you will ostracize yourself, even in the church. Paul is writing this to the church. This is an internal fight. Right? Fight's not out there. That's the enemy. He makes you think the fight's out there. It's in here. 
it would make Paul, this message would make Paul an unbearable lightning rod and would eventually literally get the man killed, beheaded. But what else could be the case when the gospel says that God will accept nothing from us for our salvation? You're Cain? What do you mean? What do you mean he will accept nothing from me? I'll kill you. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul would still be a servant of the law if he wanted to please man. Beloved, pleasing God and pleasing people are mutually exclusive. And where the rubber meets the road on the hill worth dying on, it's impossible to do both. It's impossible to do both. Again, not because of who you are, but because of the message you refuse not to proclaim. Verse 10 is powerful. It sets the tone for the whole letter. It's impossible for Paul's preaching to gain favor with human beings. Remember that. Right? The gospel should feel off to you when you hear it. It should feel wrong to you when you hear it. Precisely because it's the truth. Cain's gospel, the one the false teachers preach. Oh, humans love that message. You can pack a stadium with that message. You know what? There, there are a few things you actually can do. There's a few little tweaks you can make. There's a few small offerings you need to give, and then God will accept you. Everybody loves that message. But it's cursed. Don't preach it. Don't teach it. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. It's cursed. And the people that do believe it, they will not stay silent about it. They have to attack the death of Christ in subtle ways all the time, being all you really need, because it takes everything from them. The gospel takes everything from you and I. Paul's constant fight throughout the New Testament was against false teachers who normally propagated additions to the simple gospel. Yes, Jesus, but also... It doesn't matter what follows, but also when you're talking about how is a person made right with God. Jesus is how a person is made right with God in His death, His resurrection, period. It's faith in that alone that saves a person and makes a person right with God. If you tweak that, now really, if you're really right with God, you that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. To stand on this hill will not allow you to be a people pleaser. I wish it did. Because I love the praise of people. Right? Every week, every week, it's a fight. The only way to please people with your message is to scratch their itch to contribute something, anything. You will fall out of favor with people 
It's inevitable if you preach the gospel. It's inevitable. It's only a matter of time. Every time the gospel is proclaimed. The true gospel is foolishness to human beings. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians, we hate it. It sounds so stupid and unrealistic to us. Oh, just say you're sorry and it's all covered. Yep. 100%. It will never please people. So, to believe in and preach the gospel is to decide who you want to please. To be a church that won't waver on this is to decide who we want to please. And what we believe saves is what determines who we please. Paul didn't write this letter to keep or to make friends, but to proclaim Christ crucified. And you cannot do both. Moundsville Baptist Church, we are Paul's audience now. And he has a dual purpose in this letter. To establish precisely what it is that saves sinners with no confusion, no balance whatsoever. And to convince his beloved brothers and sisters in Galatia that what his opponents are preaching is obscuring the true gospel. It is they who are the threat. This means that's precisely what his purpose is in the living and active word of God for us today. Moundsville Baptist Church. Galatians was written to keep the one who thinks they have some skin in this game up at night. There's commentators on the whole Bible that won't even touch it. To deny that the death of Christ alone is what saves is to deny the gospel and condemn yourself. And everything in the world, the flesh and the devil, and far too often, according to Galatians, in the church, will work with all its might to get you to stop believing that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are enough. That battle never stops. It never stops. The hardest thing to do is to convince one another that that's the real fight. There are always other Gospels out there. There are always other messages about how we can be forgiven of our sins or be made right with God or if people don't talk in those terms, to find self-validation and absolution for yourself and There's always other messages about how we can get a clean conscience. But there's only one gospel. There's only one true gospel. And all of it is on Christ alone. The one true gospel of Jesus Christ teaches something way better than some damnable message of cooperation for salvation. And this is the key to the book. This is all our theology. You can get a lot of stuff Wrong, actually. You can't get this wrong. Beloved, be more deeply convicted in your heart of hearts that Christ is completely sufficient for you to stand accepted and loved before God than you are about anything else. And if you say, Tony, I am, I hope you're telling the truth and praise God if you are. And I mean that with all my heart. That's the goal. But let me ask you something. Let me ask all of you believers in the room, let me ask you something. 
Where does your mind go after you sin? Do you run to Jesus? Or does your mind look inside to try to find some way to make it right with God again? In those moments, you really know what you're leaning on to save you. And in the series, all I want to accomplish is providing you and I with enough ammo to believe that Jesus is all we need. Donald Trump won't save anybody. (laughs) Right? This is the exact same message for all the unbelievers in the room this morning too. The death of Jesus Christ, the message of grace and peace from heaven, is the only thing that can save us. Do you believe Jesus Christ this morning? If you don't, let now be the time. For all of you, let now be the time. I'm going to close in prayer for us before we take the Lord's Supper together. June is going to come when she's when I'm done praying. We'll sing. I'll be down front. If you need to come and pray for any reason whatsoever, I'll be there. Others can come and help you as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace and peace that comes to us from you by way of your Son, Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection are the only thing that saves. And so, Lord, now may you enable every person in the room to believe it with all of their hearts, that all of us might be saved. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. the deacons to come. gather this morning to take the Lord's Supper together to remember the death of Jesus Christ, the body and blood that save us by believing in them and on them.
the bread and the cup that signify the body and the blood. Through them we proclaim his death once more by remembering what he accomplished for us. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jim, would you please pray for the bread? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before this table, Lord, we do remember what you sacrificed for us, your broken body, Lord, on the cross. Lord, if it wasn't for that, we have no justification. Lord, just help us to keep that in mind. We pray this in Jesus' name.
pray for the bread. Our Father, we praise you and thank you with everything that we are for the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ that he willingly gave for all of us. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Bob, would you please pray for the cup? Lord, as we come to this table and and we look at this cup, remind us that this is not just an ordinance. It's not just a tradition. It's not just something we do on occasion but is an iconic symbol that draws us to you, that draws us to your still scarred hands, to your cut side who shed this precious blood that you didn't have to, but we needed you to. Or remind us of this value of this ordinance that we make a tradition to come to this house to worship you, and we on every occasion share your story and your blood.
Father, we praise you for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is perfect. It is sufficient and powerful enough to bring lost sinners near to you forever. So we praise you for it in the Son who shed it. In his name we pray. Amen. Just a reminder that the benevolence offering will be collected at both exits as we close. And I will sing our song together and you'll be dismissed. Thank you for being here this morning, everyone.